0: Concerning Prayer by Titullion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jesus Christ our Lord, God's Spirit, God's Word, and God's Reason, Word of Reason, and Reason of Word, and Spirit of Both fixed for the new disciples of the new covenant a new form of prayer for it was meet that in this sphere also new wine should be stored in new wineskins and that a new patch should be sewn on a new garment for everything that had been in the past was either changed as for example circumcision or completed as the rest of the law or fulfilled like prophecy or brought to perfection as faith itself. All things were renewed from their carnal state and became spiritual by the new grace of God, which added the gospel to fulfill all that had been in the past. In it, our Lord Jesus Christ was proved to be at once the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and the reason of God. The Spirit by the power He had, the Word by His teaching, and the reason by His coming. So, therefore, prayer, as established by Christ, consisted of three elements, the word by which it is uttered, the spirit in which alone lies its power, and the reason by which it is taught. John, too, had taught his disciples to pray, but all John's works was a preparation for Christ, until when he, Christ, had increased, even as the same John prophesied that he must increase while he himself must decrease, All the work of the earlier servant must pass along, with his spirit itself, to his master. The reason, too, why there is no surviving record of the words in which John taught his followers to pray, is this, that the earthly yielded to the heavenly. He that is of the earth, he said, speaketh earthly things, and he that is here from heaven speaketh those things that he hath seen and what is there belonging to the lord christ that is not from heaven this training in prayer included let us consider therefore blessed ones his heavenly wisdom particularly that touching the precept to pray in secret in which he both exacted man's faith his trust that both the sight and the hearing of the all-powerful god are present within the house and even in a secret place and also longed for the obedience of faith so that man should offer his worship to him alone, who he was confident sees and hears everywhere. The second wisdom set forth in the second precept would have a like connection with faith and the obedience of faith, if we did not think a volume of words necessary for our approach to the Lord, who we are certain looks to the good of his own without any action of ours. And yet this brevity, because it conduces to the attainment of the third degree of wisdom, is supported by the substance of a great and blessed interpretation and is as comprehensive in thought as it is succinct in language for it includes not only the special duties of prayer namely the worship of god or the petition of man but almost the whole of the lord's teaching all the recollection of his training so that really in the prayer there is contained an epitome of the whole gospel It begins with witness to God and the reward of faith when we say, Father who art in heaven. For we are both praying to God and setting forth our faith, the reward of which is the right to call him by this name. It is written, To them that have believed in him he hath given the power to be called sons of God. And yet the Lord frequently declared God to be our Father, and even commanded that we were to call none father on earth save him whom we have in heaven. Therefore, in worshipping him thus, we are also obeying a command. Happy they who recognize their father. It is the failure to do this that is cast in the teeth of Israel, a failure to which the Spirit calls heaven and earth to witness, saying, I have begotten sons, and they have not recognized me. And in calling him father, we name him God also. This name indicates at once his regard for us and his power also in calling on the father we are calling upon the son for he says i and the father are one nor is the mother the church overlooked either since in son and father mother is implied from whom the names both of father and of son derive their meaning in one way therefore or in one word we at once honour god in company with his own and remember the command and stigmatise those that have forgotten the father The name of God the Father had been revealed to no one. Even he who had asked about it, I mean Moses, had really been told a different name. It has been revealed to us in the Son. But who then is the Son? It is a new name of the Father. I have come, said he, in the name of the Father. And again, Father, glorify thy name. And more clearly, I manifested thy name unto men. We ask, therefore, that it should be kept holy, not because it is becoming that men should pray for God's good, as if there were also another power for whose good we could pray him, or as if he would be in trouble if we did not pray for him. It is, of course, most fitting that God should be blessed everywhere and always for the remembrance of his benefits, a remembrance due at all times from every man. This, too, takes the place of blessing. But... When is God's name not holy and hallowed in itself, seeing that its power makes all others holy? Before his presence the surrounding angels never cease to say, holy, holy, holy. So therefore we too, candidates for the position of angel if we earn it, even in this world, can fully learn that heavenly word with which to address God, and the duty pertaining to our future state of glory. So far concerning God's glory. Again, as regards our petition, when we say, Hallowed be thy name, we ask that it should be made holy in us, who are in him, and at the same time in all others on whom the grace of God is still waiting, that we may obey this precept also, by praying for all, even for our enemies, and therefore by curtailing our utterance, and by refraining from saying, Let it be hallowed in us, we mean in all in accordance with this form we add thy will be done in heaven and in earth not because any one is opposing the doing of god's will and we are praying that he may see his will triumph but we ask that his will may be done in all for by a figurative interpretation as flesh and spirit we are earth and heaven And yet, even if the petition is to be understood in its plain sense, nevertheless, it has the same meaning, that in us God's will may be done on earth, and that, of course, it may be done in heaven also. What else does God will but that we should walk according to his training? We ask, therefore, that he supply us with the nature and power of his will, that we may be safe both in heaven and on earth, because the chief purpose of his will is the salvation of those whom he has adopted there is also that will of god which the lord carried out in preaching working and enduring for if he himself declared that he was doing not his own will but his father's without doubt his deeds were in accordance with his father's will these we are now incited to regard as patterns that we may both preach and work and endure even to death such an ideal we cannot attain independently of the will of god likewise when we say thy will be done Even in that petition we are praying for our own benefit, because there is no evil in God's will, in spite of the fact that each man is rewarded according to his merits. By the use of this phrase, we give ourselves a timely warning that may help us to endure. Even the Lord, when in view of his impending passion, he was fain to show the weakness of the flesh, even in his own flesh, said, Father, let this cup pass from me, and then remembering added, But let not my will but thine be done. He himself was the will and power of the Father, and yet to show the endurance that became him, he delivered himself to the Father's will. Thy kingdom come is also closely bound up with the petition, Thy will be done. It means in us, of course, for when does God not reign in whose hand is the heart of all kings? But whatever we pray for for ourselves, we assign to him, and we attribute to him what we expect from him therefore if the reality of the lord's kingdom is bound up with god's will and our expectation how is it that certain persons seek it in some period of the present world's history whereas the kingdom of god for the coming of which we pray looks to the end of the world we are eager to enter into our kingdom we do not want to serve too long even if the request for the coming of the kingdom had not been prescribed in the prayer we would of our own accord have proffered that petition in our haste to embrace our hope. The souls of the martyrs under the altar call aloud to the Lord in their displeasure, How long wilt thou not avenge our blood, O Lord, on the inhabitants of the earth? Of course their avenging is settled to take place at the end of the world. Nay, rather, the speedy coming of thy kingdom, O Lord, means to the Christians answered prayer, to the heathen disgrace to the angels, rapture. For its sake we are tormented, nay, rather, for its sake we pray. But how finely the divine wisdom has arranged the order of the prayer in making room after heavenly things, that is, after the name of God, the will of God, and the kingdom of God, for a petition for earthly needs also. For the Lord had also given the command, Seek first the kingdom, and then these things also will be added unto you. And yet we ought rather to understand, Give us our daily bread this day, in a spiritual sense. For our bread is Christ, because Christ is life and the bread of life. I am, he says, the bread of life, and a little earlier, bread is the word of the living God that descendeth from heaven. And further, because his body is also deemed to be in the bread, this is my body. Therefore, in asking daily bread, we ask to live perpetually in Christ, and undivided from his body. But because this phrase is admitted in a carnal sense, it cannot be realized without the piety that belongs to spiritual instruction as well. For he commands that bread be sought, which is all the faithful need. For after all other things do the heathen seek. It is this he insists on by examples and also discusses in parables when he says, Does a father take away the bread from his children and hand it over to dogs? Also, does he give a stone to his son when he asks for bread? He shows, you see, what sons expect from a father. But the man who knocked at the door in the night also called for bread. Christ, further, was quite right to add, "'Give us this day,' seeing he had said beforehand, "'Ponder not about the morrow, what ye shall eat.' In conformity with this teaching, he added the parable of the man who planned an enlargement of his granaries for his increasing crops and periods of long freedom from care, but died on that very night." It followed that, having noted the generosity of God, we should beg for his mercy also. For what good will nourishment do if we are allotted to him exactly as a bull is to sacrifice? The Lord knew that he alone was without sin. He teaches us, therefore, to ask that our debts be forgiven. Confession is the asking of indulgence, because he who asks indulgence is confessing sin. So also penitence is shown to be acceptable to God because he wishes it more than the death of the sinner. Debt, moreover, is in the scripture a figure for sin because like debt sin is due to be judged and a demand is made on it and it does not escape just exaction unless exaction be remitted even as the master forgave that slave the debt. For that is the lesson running through the whole parable. The fact, too, that the same slave, though freed by his master, does not in like manner spare his own debtor, and for that reason is brought before his master and handed over to the torturer to pay the last penny, by which is meant punishment for even a slight sin. The fact is connected with our promise also to forgive our debtors. Already in another place, in accordance with this style of prayer, he says, Forgive, and it shall be forgiven you. And when Peter asked whether a brother was to be forgiven seven times, he said, Nay, rather seventy-seven times, that he might remodel and improve the law by which in Genesis vengeance over Cain was reckoned seven times, but over Lamech seventy times seven. To the fulness of so comprehensive a prayer, he made the addition, that we might make entreaty not only for the forgiveness of sins, but also for their entire removal. Lead us not into temptation." In other words, do not allow us to be deceived, of course, by him who tempts. But away with the idea that the Lord should be thought to tempt, as if he either did not know each man's faith or was eager to dethrone it. Weakness and evil nature belong to the devil. For even the command to Abraham about the sacrificing of his son was made not to try his faith but to approve it, that in Abraham the Lord might furnish an example for the carrying out of the command, which he was afterwards to issue, that none should look upon his dear ones with greater love than upon his God. He himself, when tempted by the devil, pointed out the ruler and author of temptation. This clause he enforces by later words, saying, Pray that ye be not tempted. They were so tempted in abandoning their Lord, because they had given themselves up to sleep, rather than to prayer. Therefore the clause brings the answer, explaining what is meant by, lead us not into temptation. For this is what it means, but draw us away from the evil one. How many commands of prophets, gospels, apostles, how many words of the Lord, parables, illustrations, precepts, are alluded to in abbreviated form in very few words? How many duties are fully set forth all at once? Respect to God, in the Father, witness to faith in his name, offering of obedience in the will, mention of hope in the kingdom, desire for life in bread, confession of debts in prayer for forgiveness, anxiety about temptations in the request for protection. What wonder God alone could teach how he wished prayer to be addressed to him. The ritual of prayer, therefore, having been settled by himself and inspired by its own special law from his own spirit even at the very time when it was coming forth from the divine lips ascends to heaven recommending to the father what the son taught since however the lord who has regard to human needs says separately after communicating the set form of prayer ask and ye shall receive and since there are things to be asked in view of the circumstances of each individual They that approach have the right, after dispatching first the regular and standard prayer, by way of a foundation, to build on it outside petitions embodying their desires, always remembering, however, the prescribed requests. Lest we should be as far away from the ears of God as we are from his precepts, the recollection of the precepts paves the way to heaven for our prayers. The chief of these precepts is that we should not ascend to God's altar until we make an end of any disagreement or misdemeanor of which we have been guilty towards our brethren. For what sort of behavior is it to approach the peace of God without peace in one's heart, to ask the forgiveness of debts while we withhold forgiveness ourselves? How will he who is angry with his brother appease his father, seeing that all wrath has from the beginning been forbidden us? Even Joseph, when giving his brothers permission to go and fetch their father, said, And do not fall into anger by the way. He certainly warned us at that time, for elsewhere our rule of life is named the way, not to proceed to the father in company with anger when we are on the way of prayer. Then the Lord, manifestly enlarging the law, puts wrath against one's brother into the same category as murder. He does not permit injury to be requited even in word even if we must get into a passion our anger is not to be maintained beyond sunset as the apostle warns us and how reckless it is either to pass a day without prayer while you are slow to apologize to your brother or to lose the chance to pray while your angry temper persists and it is not from anger alone but from every possible clouding of the spirit that the purpose of prayer ought to be free since that purpose proceeds from a spirit like unto the spirit to which it is directed. For a spirit that is stained cannot possibly be recognized by a holy spirit, or a sad by a joyful, or a shackled by a free spirit. No one welcomes an adversary, and only a real friend is admitted to our confidence. But what sense is there in engaging in prayer with hands washed, it is true, but with the spirit befouled, since even for the hands themselves spiritual cleanliness is necessary, that they may be raised in a state of purity, from forgery, from murder, from cruelty, from poisonings, from idolatry, and all other stains, which are devised by the spirit, though they are carried out by the work of the hands." This is the true cleanliness, and not that which very many superstitiously cultivate, making use of water for every prayer, even when they have just bathed the whole body. When I inquired very carefully about it, and asked the reason, I found that it was a commemoration of the fact that Pilate washed his hands when delivering up the Lord. But we worship the Lord, we are not delivering him up. Nay, rather, we ought to oppose the example of such an one and not for that sake to wash our hands, except we wash for conscience' sake on account of some stain due to human manner of life. In other respects, our hands are clean enough, for we have washed them with the rest of our bodies, once for all in Christ. Although Israel wash daily over his whole body, yet he is never clean. At least his hands are always unclean, for they are covered over for ever with the blood of the prophets and of the Lord himself, and therefore inheriting the guilt of their fathers, they do not dare even to raise them to the Lord, lest some Isaiah should cry aloud, lest Christ should be filled with horror. We, however, do not merely raise them, but also spread them out, and we make our confession to Christ while we represent the Lord's passion, and likewise pray. But since we have touched upon one kind of useless worship, it will not be irksome to point out others also which are justly to be reproached as useless since they are practised without the authority of any command either of the lord or of the apostles such practices are indeed to be put down not to piety but to superstition being as they are eagerly pursued and forced the product of a scrupulous rather than a rational sense of duty and assuredly to be stopped if for no other reason than that they put us on a level with the heathen For example, certain people offer prayer divested of their upper garments. That is the way the heathen approach their images. If this were our duty, the apostles, who give instruction regarding the attitude of prayer, would certainly have included it in their teaching. But perhaps some suppose that Paul left his upper garment with carpus while engaged in prayer. God, of course, would not listen to men clad in the upper garments, although he caught the words of the three holy men in the Babylonian king's furnace, when they prayed with their trousers and their turbans on. Again, why, after prayer is duly ended, certain people are accustomed to seat themselves, I cannot see the reason, unless it is that which appeals to children. For, if the well-known Hermas, whose writing is generally entitled the shepherd, had not seated himself on his couch after his prayer was over, but had done something else, would we claim that this practice too should be observed? Certainly not. For even now the words, when I had prayed and had seated myself upon my couch, are set down simply in the course of the narrative, and not as a pattern of a custom to be followed. Otherwise, prayer will have to be offered only where there is a couch. Nay, any one who sits on a seat or a bench will be acting contrary to Scripture, But, since the heathen do likewise, sitting down after they have prayed to their marionettes, even for that reason, what is performed in the presence of images, deserves to be reproved in us. There, too, is added the fault of irreverence, a fault that even the heathen themselves would understand if they had any sense. If, indeed, it is irreverent to be seated in close view of, and right opposite him, who you are at the very moment revering and worshipping, how much more is this act irreligious, in close view of the living God, while the messenger of prayer is still standing by, unless it be that we are reproaching God with the weariness prayer causes us. And yet if we pray in an orderly and humble attitude, we shall the more commend our prayers to God, even if our hands themselves are not raised on high, but raised moderately and fitly, without the presumptuous raising of the face either. For the publican in the gospel— who not only prayed with humble words, but with humble and downcast expression of face, went away more justified than the self-confident Pharisee. Even the tones of the voice ought to be subdued. Else how many air passages should we need, if we be heard for our sound? But God is hearer not of the voice, but of the mind, even as he is its discerner. The demon of the Pythian oracle says, Even a dumb man, I understand, and I catch the utterance of one that does not speak. Is it a sound that God's ears are waiting for? How, then, could Jonah's prayer find its way out to heaven, from the depths of the sea-monster's belly through the inward parts of so great a beast, and from the very depths of the sea through so great a mass of waters? And what more will those who pray too loudly gain, except the disturbance of their neighbors? Nay, rather, if they reveal their petitions what less are they doing than if they were to pray in public? Another custom has now become increasingly common. Those who are fasting after engaging in prayer with their brethren refrain from offering the kiss of peace which is the seal of prayer. But when can peace be more fittingly exchanged with the brethren than at the time when the prayer of fasting is ascending and is more acceptable that they themselves may share in our fasting by which they have been softened for the making of an agreement with a brother touching their own peace? What prayer is complete when divorced from the holy kiss, who, when performing his duty to the Lord, is hindered by peace? What sort of sacrifice is it from which one departs without peace? Whatever sort of prayer it be, it will not be better than obedience to the precept which commands us to conceal our fastings as it is, by abstaining from the kiss we are recognized to be fasting. But, if there is anything to be said for the practice, you can, perhaps, to prevent you from being guilty of disobeying this command, dispense with the kiss of peace at home, where fasting cannot be entirely concealed. Wherever else, however, you can conceal your state of fasting, you ought to remember the precept. You will thus carry out the public practice and the private custom alike. So also on Good Friday on which the religious duty of fasting is general, and, as it were official, we rightly give up the kiss, not being careful to conceal what we are doing in common with everyone else. Similarly, also, with regard to the days of the stations, very many do not think that they should take part in the prayers of the sacrifices, because the station ought to be broken up after receiving the Lord's body does the eucharist then abolish a service dedicated to god or does it not rather bind it the more to god will not your station be more instinct with religion if you stand at god's altar if you have received and preserved the lord's body both privileges are secure your participation in the sacrifice and your performance of your duty if the station has got its name from the example of the army for we are also the soldiers of god Assuredly no joy or sorrow happening to the camp abolishes the outpost duty of the soldiers, for joy will carry out the discipline more gladly and sorrow more anxiously. Again, concerning the dress, of women at least, the variety of custom has made it impertinent, especially for a man of no position like myself to express misgivings, after what the Holy Apostle has said, except that there would be nothing impertinent in the statement of scruples, if they were in accordance with the apostles' views. Concerning the propriety, indeed, of dress and adornment, there is an unmistakable direction from Peter also, checking, in the same words, because also in the same spirit, as Paul, both the flaunting of dress, the arrogant display of gold, and the meretriciously elaborate coiffure. A practice, however, maintained universally throughout the churches must be reviewed, as if it were of doubtful validity, namely, whether virgins ought to be veiled or not. Those who concede to virgins the right to keep their heads unveiled appear to rely on the fact that the apostle laid it down, not that virgins specifically, but that women should be veiled, and referred not to the sex, employing the word females, but to the rank of the sex, saying women. For if he had named the sex using the word females, he would have clearly laid down the law with regard to every woman, but when he names one rank of the sex, he distinguishes the other from it by his silence. He could, they say, have either named virgins specially, or used the comprehensive, general term females. Those who make this concession should reflect on the constitution of the word itself, what is meant by the term woman from the very earliest literature in the Holy Writings. They find that already it is the name of the sex, and does not indicate the rank of the sex, since Eve, when she had not yet known man, was named by God both woman and female, female in virtue of her sex in a general sense, woman in virtue of the rank of her sex in a special sense. So, since Eve was called by the name woman, though at that time still unmarried, that name has become applicable to a virgin also, and it is not to be wondered at that the apostle being of course moved by the same spirit as inspired the composition of the whole of the divine scripture including the book of genesis also used the same word woman as after the example of eve is suitable to an unmarried woman and a virgin besides the rest of his doctrine is in agreement for by the very fact that he did not name virgins any more than in another passage where he is teaching about marriage, he sufficiently declares that he has been speaking about every woman and about the whole sex, and that he has made no distinction between woman and virgin. The latter, as a matter of fact, he does not name. One who remembers to make a distinction in other passages, where of course a difference demands it, and he shows the distinction by indicating each of the two classes by its own name, When he does not make a distinction, while he refrains from naming both, intends that no difference should be understood. Again, in the Greek language in which the Apostle composed his letters, it is the custom to speak as much of women as of females. If, therefore, this word, which is in the translation instead of female, is in frequent use as the name of the sex, it was the sex he named when he said woman. In the sex, moreover, the virgin is also referred to, But the following statement is also clear. Every woman, he says, that prays or preaches with uncovered head, disgraces her head. What is meant by every woman, if not women of every age, every class, every position? By the use of the word all, he leaves out no element in woman, just as he leaves out no element in man, and no aspect of veiling. For he says in like manner, every man... Therefore, just as in the case of the male sex, under the name man, even a beardless man is forbidden to veil himself, so also in the case of the female sex, under the name woman, even the virgin is commanded to be veiled. In both sexes alike, let the younger follow the practice of the elder, or else let the male virgins be veiled too. If the female virgins are not veiled, because the male virgins are not bound by name either, let a man who is also beardless be regarded as different from another. If a woman who is also a virgin is to be so regarded, to be sure it is on account of the angels, he says, that they ought to be veiled because the angels revolted from God for the sake of the daughters of men. Who then would claim that women alone, that is, those already married, who have done with virginity, are objects of desire, unless it be unlawful that virgins also should excel in beauty and find lovers? Nay, rather, let us see whether it was not virgins only that they desired, since the scripture says, the daughters of men, because the writer could have named wives of men or women indifferently. Also in saying, and took them to themselves as wives, his view is determined by the fact that it is those, of course, that are free who are taken as wives. He would have expressed himself differently concerning those that are not free, of course, They are apart alike from widowhood and virginity. So by naming the sex in general terms daughters, he mingled the subdivisions together in the whole class. Also, when he says that nature herself teaches that women ought to be veiled by assigning the hair as a covering and an adornment to women, is not the same covering and the same glory of the head assigned also to virgins? If it is a disgrace to a woman to be shaved, it is equally so to a virgin." From those then to whom one state of the head is assigned, one practice with regard to the head is also demanded, and this applies even to those virgins who are protected by their childhood, for from the very first she has been named female. This finally is also the practice of Israel. But even if he did not practice it, our law, being enlarged and completed, would claim the addition for itself. He, or it, would be excused if he, or it, cast the veil over virgins also now let the age which knows not its own sex retain the privilege belonging to its simplicity for even adam also when knowledge befell them immediately covered what they had recognized certainly those in whom childhood has now passed away ought in adolescence to perform the duties of morality as well as those of nature for both in body and in duties they are counted among women no woman is a virgin from the time that she is marriageable since the age in her has already married its own husband, namely time. But some virgin has vowed herself to God, yet from that time she both dresses her hair differently and changes all her dress to that of a woman. Let her then make a complete profession and present all the characteristics of a virgin. Let her completely enshroud that which for God's sake she conceals. It is of importance to us to commend to the knowledge of God alone what the grace of God makes it possible to practice, lest we should esteem it as highly what comes from men as what we hope for from God. Why dost thou bear before God what thou coverest before men? Wilt thou be more modest in public than in church? If it is a gift of God, and thou hast received it, why dost thou boast, he asks, as if thou hadst not received it? Why, by self-display, dost thou pass a judgment on other women? Is thy ostentation meant to encourage others to that which is good? But really, if thou boastest, thou art thyself in danger of loss, and thou art also forcing others into the same dangers. If we assume a quality from a passion for glory, we are liable to be deceived. Veil thyself, virgin, if virgin thou art, for modesty is thy duty if thou art a virgin do not submit to the gaze of the multitude let no one look with admiration on thy form let no one feel thy falsehood thou counterfeitest well the aspect of a bride if so be thou dost veil thy head nay thou dost not appear false for thou hast wedded christ to him thou hast surrendered thy flesh act as thy husband's rule requires if he bids brides of others to veil themselves be sure he bids his own much more but think not that the rule of every predecessor is to be upset. Many give over their own wisdom and its steadfastness to the bondage of another's habit. Let them not then be forced to veil themselves, but at any rate it is not right that those who wish to do so should be prevented. Even those who cannot deny that they are virgins I permit to enjoy in their repute quietness of conscience before God. Concerning those, however, who are promised to bridegrooms, I can unhesitatingly go beyond my rule and declare with all solemnity that they must be veiled from that day on which they have quivered at the first contact with a man's body in kiss and right hand. For everything in them has already entered into wedlock, their age by its ripeness, their flesh by its age, their spirit by its knowledge, their modesty by its experience of the kiss, their hope by its expectation, their mind by its consent rebecca is enough of an example for us who when her bridegroom had been merely pointed out veiled herself when marrying the knowledge of him as regards kneeling also prayer finds a variety of practice in the action of a certain very few who refrain from kneeling on the saturday at the very moment when this difference of opinion is pleading its cause in the churches the lord will give his grace that they may either yield or without proving a stumbling-block to others, follow their own opinion. But we, according to the tradition we have received on the day of the Lord's resurrection, and on it alone, ought to refrain carefully not only from this, but from every attitude and duty that cause perplexity, putting off even our daily business, lest we give any place to the devil. The same thing too at Whitsuntide, which is distinguished by the same solemnity of its rejoicing, But who would hesitate daily to prostrate himself before God, even at the very first prayer with which we enter on the day? Further, at the fastings and stations, no prayer must be engaged in without the bended knee and the other signs of humility. For we are not only praying, but also begging for mercy and confessing our misdeeds to God our Lord. With regard to the times of prayer, nothing at all has been ordained, save, of course, that we must pray at all times and in all places but why in all places when we are forbidden to do so in public in all places he means that convenience or even necessity has offered nor indeed do we regard the apostles as having disobeyed this command when they prayed and sang to god in prison in the hearing of the prisoners or paul who on board ship in the presence of all celebrated the eucharist concerning time however the keeping also of certain hours will not be useless from an external point of view I mean of these common hours that mark the intervals of the day, the third, sixth, and ninth, which in Scripture are to be found the most usual. The first pouring of the Holy Spirit on the assembled disciples took place at the third hour. Peter, on the day of which he experienced the vision of all uncleanness in the vessel, had, at the sixth hour, ascended to the top of the house to pray. He also, in company with John, was on his way into the temple at the ninth hour, when he restored the paralytic to health and although these facts are stated simply without any command about the practice yet it would be a good thing to establish some prior standard which will both compel the remembrance of prayer and as it were compulsorily at times drag one away from affairs to such a duty we read also of daniel's practice which followed you may be sure the teaching of israel we ought like him to pray not less than thrice a day being debtors to the three father son and holy spirit of course, quite apart from the regular prayers, which without any reminder are due to the beginning of day and night. But it becomes the faithful neither to take food nor to proceed to the bath before prayer has intervened. For the refreshment and food of the Spirit must be deemed to come before that of the flesh, since heavenly things come before earthly things. When a brother has entered thy house, suffer him not to depart without prayer. Thou hast seen says he, A brother, thou hast seen thy Lord, particularly if he be a stranger, lest perchance he be an angel. Even he himself, when received by brethren, would not put earthly refreshment before heavenly. For immediately your faith will be judged, or else how will you say according to the precept, Peace be to this house, if you do not exchange a greeting of peace with those who are in the house. Those who are more careful in the matter of prayer are wont to add in their prayers the hallelujah and psalms of this character to the clauses of which a response is to be made by those who are in their company. And certainly every custom is excellent which conduces to the precedence and honour of God, and such is the bringing to him a full prayer like some fat victim. This is in fact the spiritual victim that abolished the sacrifices of the olden time, To what purpose, says he, is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams, and I will have none of the fat of lambs or the blood of bulls and of goats. For who hath required these at your hands? What God therefore did seek the gospel teachers, the hour will come, he says, when true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For God is a spirit, and therefore he seeks worshippers of like kind we are the true worshippers and the true priests who are praying with the spirit with the spirit sacrifice prayer a victim specially appropriate and acceptable to god a victim which he truly sought which he had in mind for himself this is the victim dedicated with our whole heart fed on faith cared for with truth unblemished in innocence clean in purity an offering of love garlanded that we ought to escort to God's altar, in company with a procession of good works, midst psalms and hymns, and it will obtain all things for us from God. What will God refuse to prayer that comes from spirit and truth, since such He demands? We read and hear and see how great are the proofs of His power. Even the prayers of the olden times freed men from fire and wild beasts and starvation, yet it had not received its pattern from Christ. But how much more does Christian prayer work? It does not plant the angel of moisture in the midst of a fire, or stop the mouths of lions, or bring country fare to the starving. It turns away no feeling of suffering by the gift of grace, but furnishes sufferers and the victims of intense feeling and pain with the power to endure. It extends grace to include courage, that faith may know what it is to get from the Lord, realizing what it is suffering for God's name. But even in past days, prayer-inflicted scourges, routed the hosts of the enemy, stayed the benefit of rain showers. Now, however, righteous prayer turns away all the wrath of God, keeps watch in face of the enemy, begs for the persecutors. Is there any wonder that it can wring water from the sky, seeing that it could obtain even fire? Prayer is the only thing that can prevail with God but christ willed that it should work no evil all the power he conferred upon it sprang from good so it has no power except to recall the souls of the dead from the very way of death to restore the maimed to cure the sick to purge the victims of evil spirits to open the bars of the prison to loosen the bonds of the upright it also washes away sins, drives back temptations, quenches persecutions, consoles the downhearted, cheers the courageous, attends upon the traveller in distant lands, subdues waves, confounds robbers, nourishes the poor, guides the rich, raises the fallen, supports the falling, and upholds them that do stand. Prayer is a wall for faith, a shield and a weapon against the enemy who watches us from all sides. Therefore let us never go forth unarmed. Let us bethink ourselves of the station by day, and of watching by night. Under the armor of prayer let us guard the standard of our commander. Let us in prayer await the angel's trump. All the angels likewise pray. And every creature, beasts of the field and wild beasts, pray and bend the knee. And as they leave the stable or the cave, look up to heaven with no vain utterance, stirring their breath after their own manner even the birds, as they rise in the morning, wing their way up to heaven, and make an outstretched cross with the wings in place of hands, and utter something that seems a prayer. What more, then, is there to say on the duty of prayer? Even the Lord himself prayed, to whom be honour and power for ever and ever. End of Concerning Prayer by Tertullian